Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. I'm Dan Rundy. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS. We're having a conversation about, based around a report launch of a report we're doing, rethinking taxes and development, incorporating political economy considerations in DRM strategies. Uh, we're really grateful to our friends at DAI in particular who've helped us think about this. We've done a lot of work on taxes and development over the last five years. I mean, who, I mean this can be a super boring topic, uh, though the fact that you all are here on a Friday uh, says something about you, but I think it also says something about the importance of the topic. I think you also all know how important this is. If you want to have a, a real society, if you want to have a real state, you actually need to have, and you, it, it's actually critical to the success of a society. So um, all of you know that, but terms like DRM just don't kind of pull at the heartstrings, and they're not, and they're, and they're hard to kind of make uh, accessible to earth people. Though I think the UN process of financing for development has mainstreamed this in a much more serious way. I also think the concept in the United States of the journey to self-reliance, I also think this is part of that conversation as well. I also think what's uh, important is how we combine the social contract and, and, and political issues and political considerations and link it to how we collect taxes and how we spend government money. Um, there's, a, there's a concept called tax solidarity, uh, and there's, in essence, uh, it's implicit in, I mean, I, my wife is from Argentina, and um, you know, the line is only stupid people pay taxes. Uh, and so there's a, there's a whole series of assumptions about um, about when and how people are willing to pay taxes because people are smart and ra rational and if they feel that politicians are gonna steal the money instead of spending it wisely, they won't pay the taxes. And so issues of politics are really important um, and it's, I think it's the thorniest challenge around domestic resource mobilization considerations. So that's what this report is about. Um, so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of the panelists to make kind of brief opening statements or using the report as sort of a, a lens to, to, to get this conversation going around political economy and domestic resource mobilization. Um, I'm going to start with Alex Katane, uh, who is the chief of party for um, DAI's RG3 um, program in, in Liberia, and he's going to talk about that, and then we'll, we'll just go down the, the panel here. Alex, the floor is yours. Thank you, Dan. Uh, so uh, the RG3 stands for Revenue Generation for Governance and Growth Project. I think it's one of the uh, projects uh, within the new DRM um, uh, line of business of USAID. And uh, our project uh, served as a case study for, for, the, uh, for the research that has been uh, done by, by Dan and, and his team. So. I would like to emphasize that uh, political economy is very important. Building consensus is very important. And from the very beginning, um, I would say that USAID, um, even before the project started, 
USAID went out there, they engaged the uh, counterparts, engaged the government, and basically asked a very important uh, question. Um, this is, the, you would like revenues, you need to finance uh, education, you need to finance health. Uh, are you prepared for reforms? Are you pre prepared to change? Right. So, and then they've conducted the benchmarking uh, analysis. Uh, well, basically, they, they did the TADAD assessment jointly. What's with, a TADAD assessment? It's, tax, it's, it's a new tool that was developed, uh, I believe, by uh, IMF, World Bank, uh, USAID, uh, and that um, basically assesses uh, tax administration uh, in and, and identifies areas of weaknesses uh, within the tax administration. So. And, and, and that served a, a, as a basis for, for us to come in and, and, and try to implement reforms. And, and, and of course, yes, we had to pull a lot of skeletons from, from the closets. You know, some of the first reactions within the governments were, were quite, uh, quite uh, entertaining and, and we had uh, quite, quite a few discussions. But in the end, what's, what's important is that they were prepared for the change. They knew what they were signing up for. And um, when we've conducted our uh, benchmarking, right, the benchmarking uh, by um, US, which is a USAID tool, tax benchmarking, uh, which goes even deeper than TADAT and, and identifies potential avenues for reform. While that identifies weaknesses, then benchmarking has very good suggestions how to address uh, those weaknesses. So today, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy three years into the project. We, um, we were able to engage the government. We were able to build consensus uh, on the most uh, important reforms. And we rolled out e-filing. We rolled out uh, mobile payments, uh, payments through commercial banks, data processing centers that um, passed the excise tax um, bill. And uh, the, today, the revenues are in year three are finally going up. Uh, they are about 15 percent up, which is, um, if you compare, so it's, it's probably would go up by 60, 70 million dollars this year. And how much was alone. the program? And the project uh, was, uh, for the five years, yeah. is, is 15 million. So okay, so 15 million bucks of USG money ju juiced up 60 million bucks in one year of additional taxes, right? That's the point? Yes, that's okay. basically it. Okay, so that's a good return. Can we agree on that? Absolutely. Okay, good. Good. And that could be used, of course, to, 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 to increase uh, expenditure so on health, education, crucial infrastructure. So, so, Alex, one of the things I think the aid community needs to do is have a little bit more humility. I think our theory of change is stuck somewhere in the 60s where most of the health or education spend in many poor countries came from foreign aid, ODA. And I would argue that in most developing countries today, it's a much smaller percentage. It's not your grandparents' developing world. It's not your grandparents' Africa. It's richer, freer, more capable. There's a growing middle class. It's more urbanized. And they have more options. And I also would also argue that in the last 20 years, there's been a five times increase in taxes collected in Africa. Now, some of that's a growing middle class. Some of that's increased formality. Some of it is because 53 of the 54 sub-Saharan African countries have discovered or are exploiting oil, gas, or mining revenues. So there's a whole series of things that have increased the amount of taxes collected in, in, in it's just say, in the continent of Africa, for example. Um, how does this issue of 
taxes and uh, political economy? How does this come into play? We were talking earlier, we did a podcast and we talked about, uh, I called them crony capitalists, you used the more politically correct term of vested interest. I said that in my next life I'd like to be a crony capitalist because they seem to have all the fun until the, they get into trouble. But tell me about the challenges of tax collection and vested interest. How's that, if I say vested interests in Liberia, how does that come across sort of this, uh, the work that you're doing in Liberia? Well, it's, it's not only in, in Liberia. In general, the, the environment in, in these countries is um, a very, very important. I mean, um, some, some of my colleagues mentioned that the uh, capacity of the people uh, is very low, especially a country like Liberia, mm -hmm. where they've had a couple, uh, a couple of decades of war and they have one or two lost generations that are trying yeah. to, uh, to, to, um, to get ahead and trying to uh, contribute to the development of the country, but uh, capacity is quite limited. Um, uh, political resources, financial and political resources, uh, absorption capacity of the government, uh, they are all um, limited. And at the same time, you do have vested interests, that, that's correct. And very often the way I see it, the um, tax administrations try and tax the, um, in every country I, I go, right, the first question if you ask them, what, who are we going to tax? Telcos, telcos, you know, telecoms. And then uh, who is not underpaying the tax? Oh, telecoms, telecoms. And then you ask them, but uh, uh, where is the biggest contribution, proportion of taxes coming from this? Telecoms. <laughs> so, and it's like, and this is the story wherever you go. And, and that's the thing. Telecoms, they are more transparent. They're usually foreign direct investment. They are not uh, as connected as, as potential say, forestry. E e in this easy field. pickings. Yes, they're easy. They're more easy pickings, but they're also so very important. So it's so very important to to promote transparency, to uh, uh, to to make to to make uh, tax exemptions uh, or tax expenditures, as they are often called, transparent and put them on the table, so that uh, by engaging there and increasing. Uh, the proportion of taxes being paid by other um, uh, other businesses, you also help leveling playing field for, for the businesses. George, thanks for being here. Um, you are you're a adjunct professor in the School of Public Policy at the Shar School at George Mason, uh, but you've had multiple prior lives. You have a book out um, that you should show everybody, um, but. You're interested in the issue of state capacity. Yes, buy it retail. <laughs> Building democracy and it's international okay. governance at Rutledge. My wife published on Rutledge as well. They're super they're, is it really expensive book? Because my, my wife's book is like 120 bucks retail. 15 bucks. That's, that's a much better deal you than my You pay for what you get. You pay for what you get. <laughs> but, 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 but George, how, why, so George, you, you're interested in state capacity. How do governments Actually, you're part of this conversation because there are political windows of opportunity, but you need a, a, a state that's capable either delivering public services, managing money properly, or collecting taxes, having some kind of a, a social contract with the society. How, is, that, is that where you come into this conversation? Use my Political economy approach of, of looking at maybe vested interests is, is I think you know, a good way to start this 
because you're trying to get top-level political support for any of the reforms that we do, either in tax policy or tax administration, and the opportunities are few and far between. Um, and uh, the trouble with the, the looking at vested interests, uh, I mean, obvious things like uh, telecom, sure, but uh, you're so looking- it closer to the microphone. You're, you, don't, you have a big voice, but- Hello. That's better. Um, the, uh, the, the fact is that the, the vested interests are complex webs of ethnicities and sects and tribes in, in many countries. And they're not just simple, uh, uh, you can't just read them off a chart and say these, this is the level of influence each one of these special interests have. Um, so uh, for a tax person, uh, the idea is to try, hopefully to veer off from tax policy on the broadest corporate and income taxes that uh, in, in encourage accountability to the government and feedback uh, so that the government is actually providing services, projects, and programs that benefit uh, people, which they mostly don't do now. And we mentioned that in Liberia, one of the case studies here, the current effectiveness uh, rating is about you know, less than 3% out of 100. And so uh, you're really talking about a, in many cases, I, when I worked for IMF, many cases I, I worked in the ministries of many countries with, their, with the teams, you found centers of excellence that the IMF you know, often contributed to making. But they were like, uh, you know, almost like a Toys R Us steering wheel on, a, on the dashboard. You know, you, you would turn the wheel, but there, it wasn't connected to the wheels. Uh, and so they, they were putting all these, you know, ex really excellent people out there, and they would come to Washington, go to the IMF Institute, and come back. And these are solid people in every country you worked in. Uh, the poorest country, Haiti I worked in. I mean, yeah, poorest country, the best people you could find. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you have to uh, connect the wheels to the machinery of tax administration and policy. And the linkage is probably incentives. Uh, you want to try and design uh, procedures that encourage people to pay taxes. And that's why I think often uh, it comes down to not just methods and systems and stuff that we can import our norms from the developed countries, from I, uh, IRS and, and British uh, UK tax service, uh, as well as New Zealand, Australia. These are nice, they're good, they look good, they look good in books, but uh, you have to somehow uh, institutionalize uh, incentives into the, the picture, and that means flexibility and, and institutions in these countries that are, are linked to the expenditures to answer the question, why should I pay taxes? I'm not getting any services. Uh, what, what's what's the what's in this, this in, in it for me? Uh, and we can come up with uh, training for assessors and for tax auditors and so on. And the less connection there is between the government uh, responsiveness and uh, these kind of uh, uh, roles and activities, the more dangerous those jobs are. You know, who wants to be a tax assessor in a country that's got a, a rating of a two-point, you know, effectiveness rating? I mean, if you ask more people to pay taxes in a country like that, you probably end up in the river. And so it's a dangerous job, and uh, the, the more effective these, these uh, roles are in tax, uh, the more dangerous it gets uh, for them. And I think we know that uh, as when we go on to missions and, and tell these people, yeah, go out there, go out and do this, assess the job, assess them, and I'll be right behind you in Washington. <laughs> you know, you just give me a call if there's any problem. Um, hey, call me at the think tank. I'll be here at the think tank. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so in the book here, I, I, I'll just briefly uh, say that there are challenges to effective government, 
efficient, effective uh, government that deliver uh, good programs, uh, projects, and services, and they are ethno-nationalism, populist nationalism, uh, macroeconomic stability, and even uh, aid itself, the delivery process of aid, which I spend quite a bit of time on here. Um, and um, that, in turn, if it, 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 these, these problems lead to weaker, more fragile, and failed states, and that they, in turn, uh, cause more problems of ethno-nationalism, populist nationalism, macroeconomic stability, and bad policies, and the, the cycle continues. So I think DRM is very important that uh, we can break into this with some sensible ideas, which we've just talked about already, and this report uh, details uh, very clearly uh, on how to encourage people to pay taxes, how to get better policies, to have broader tax bases, lower rates, uh, and get, get the connection between uh, you know, taxes and, uh, uh, and, and effective government. Maybe we should use the, uh, what, the uh, Eurovision approach you know, looking at cultures, looking at the cultures, integrating them into the uh, the approach. This is the song contest. Yes, right? I'm not saying that we come up with uh, tax ditties, but you know, it might be a start. We all, you know, go out there in our uniforms and dance around and say, "It's all tax paying is good. I pay taxes, and it's good for you, and it'll it'll make them uh, more excited about, and it'll make the government more excited about delivering something that the people, health, education, agriculture." Uh, roads, infrastructure, rule of law, all these kind of things that we talk about in our, in our endless papers that they need to mm. do and they have to be encouraged. Some, most of the time, it's sad to say, most of the time it's not lack of money. There have been some academic papers looking at sort of strategic or tactical alliances in Eurovision, sort of different countries saying, well, this is sort of my affinity country, so I'm going to vote for them. And you know, there's sort of these there's, there's patterns over time. So we need to create sort of tactical alliances on, on taxes, perhaps. And how do we bring, get, create the Eurovision tactical alliances on this? But I do think one of the things that, that comes to mind, George, when you talk is, Secretary Albright, uh, who's the chair of the National Democratic Institute, and Ken Wallach, who used to run the National Democratic Institute and is an affiliate here at CSIS, uh, talk a lot about delivering on democracy. And so I think one of the challenges is if, if we, people, you get elected, and then you can't actually either collect the taxes or spend it well, or then pay the cops, or pay the teachers, or build the hospital, or build the road, or build the power plant, you're going to have a political backlash on that. So this is linked to the ability to deliver on democracy, I think. There should be a quid pro quo somewhere at the, at the operational level, strategic level, maybe both levels. Yeah, thank you. Okay, and thanks for that Eurovision thing. That's what I'm going to come away with. Thank you. Okay. Kimberly, thanks for being here. You're a DAA, a Deputy Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Economic Growth, Education, and Environment. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be here with us. Thanks for being here. And it's a real pleasure to be here today. I want to first congratulate CSIS on the great research that they conducted on this topic and then organizing this event to help elevate and disseminate the information on a broader scale. And it's great to be here, a real pleasure to be here with such a distinguished panel. So USAID considers DRM is, is really essential to developing a country's journey from moving from aid dependence to more self-sufficiency. I think a lot of people may have heard of our administrator, Administrator Green's um, key objective in his tenure, and that is the journey to self-reliance. So really helping countries to plan, finance, and implement their own development solutions. And so really DRM gets at the heart at the financing piece. 
USCID around the world invests about $35 million in, these, in the DRM space, and we work in about 20 countries right now. And those countries span from Liberia and Uganda's um, to the Republic of Georgia's, who are a little bit further along uh, in their development, uh, on, the, on the road to on the development spectrum. So uh, I wanted to take this opportunity today to kind of offer a few points that we've learned being uh, having such a rich and long history in this space. And the first issue that's been mentioned a few times is the importance of local leadership and ownership. So we can bring in the best administrative and technical experts to look at some of these issues and, and make the tweaks and the adjustments to the systems and processes in DRM, but it really is uh, getting to the commitment of addressing the main sources of perennial revenue gaps, whether it be wasteful tax exemptions or institutionalized corruption, as we, to talk, we just talked about in the uh, uh, Liberia example. If we don't have that commitment, the local leadership, it's really difficult for us to make that transformative change uh, and lasting change in DRM. The second really is the importance of benchmarking, again, as has been discussed, because revenue targets alone really don't kind of get at the health of the DRM system in a country. And so we are advocates, avid supporters of the, the TADAT that was mentioned, uh, which really helps to kind of look at what the strengths and weaknesses are in the systems and objectively talk through our host counterparts and what the priorities should be when we move uh, into working in these spaces. And USCID also has invested over a decade in data, uh, data gathering efforts, including collecting taxes, which allow us to benchmark against international standards and norms and allow us to track a country over the longer term. Third uh, is the need to meet partners where they're at, and that's typical of all of our development efforts. But when it comes to DRM, we might be looking at something very basic like rebuilding the tax registry or streamlining the processes for uh, filing and uh, registering. But in other countries where we're a little bit further along, maybe we'll be counseling them on what DRM looks like and what the risks might be in increasingly um, globalized, integrated marketplace. So we really need to kind of tailor our assistance in, in these countries that we work with. Fourth, um, the most sustainable reforms are that are those are the most inclusive. So we really look at um, working with civil society, our DRG, our democracy and governance officers in the field to see how we can better engage business associations and others to really help engage uh, citizens in the entire process. Uh, this doesn't obviously lead to great increases immediately uh, in revenue collection, but in the longer term, it does build that trust and connection between the state and citizens that we're trying to get to at the longer term and reinforce that tax-paying culture over time. And fifth, when it comes to DRM, we really need to be, we as donors need to be willing to play the long game. Uh, the countries that have had the most impressive gains are those that had the political commitment, but really sustained efforts from the donors in our parts and being able to be flexible and agile to take advantage of opportunities when they come available is really, has been really key to um, our overall efforts. And then lastly, it's not enough for governments to simply collect taxes. We are also looking at the importance of making sure that those precious revenues that are raised are invested uh, in initiatives that will advance the overall country's development in health and education and so forth. So we really are looking at helping countries to develop budgets to execute them and then to monitor progress. 
to really to get that to the to the greatest uh, development impact uh, for our precious U.S. Tax ta ta taxpayers dollars. So we're really pleased to see all this common ground um, that between our own uh, DRM efforts over years and the presentation, the recommendations of this report. We want to emphasize that we value your and count on your long-term support in this and collaboration in this area, and we uh, we look forward to continuing that. Right. So what you're saying is, is everyone should not watch a film tonight, and they should read this report. Is that what you're trying exactly. to say? Exactly. Thank you. Thank. Thanks, Kimberly. Thanks. I think there's some really important comments you've made here. I think that. Um, I think AID and the IMF in particular have, in, in, along with Treasury, have really toiled in the vineyards on these issues for a long time. If I think about major progress in a country like El Salvador, major progress in a country like Jordan, major progress in a country like Georgia, these were sort of long-term commitments that AID made, partnering with governments, oftentimes partnering with the, the fund, or you know, and then, so I think there are many examples of countries that have had, seen progress and taking a long-term approach that you have done has been an important part of it. So I'm grateful that aid has invested the, the resources and political capital and time into this issue. Um, and I think this is sort of the, the, the I think we've cracked the technical solutions to these problems, that the, the thornier ones are these ones, these institutional capacity or vested interest and the political economy ones. And so this is sort of the next, the next level of, of challenge that I think we, we, can, we can solve. Um, and so I'm really pleased that, that, you, you, with your lead, with, that AID is leading on this. So thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Muyungwa, thanks for being here. Um, you're with, you're a technical assistance advisor at the IMF. You're from Zambia originally. I really appreciate you being here. As I, as I said earlier, uh, I'm a great fan of Catherine Baer, who is at the IMF and is sort of the, she doesn't, I don't know what her ta title is, but I've always thought of her as like the tax czarina of the IMF. And so it's sort of the, is it, it runs a, a very important technical assistance function um, for the IMF on taxes. and. Um, I asked her one time, I said, okay, Catherine, I know her pretty well. I said, Catherine, okay, so Catherine, what's the bare minimum for a country on what it needs to collect as a percentage of GNP? Like, what's the rule of thumb? And she, she played along and she said, okay, the bare minimum, Dan, is about 20%. What you want it for developing countries to shoot for about 20%. So I've always thought that was a pretty good rule of thumb. So, Muyungwa, thanks for being here. As I said earlier, I think the fund is a critical partner on these issues, and so I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, Catherine Barr is actually the, our division uh, chief in uh, Revenue Administration 2 of the Fiscal Affairs Department of the IMF. Most of the people, maybe not here, but uh, in the world where the DRIM is a key, is a key topic, uh, only know the, the lending side of the International Monetary Fund. They are not very privy to the capacity building um, uh, work that the fund does, especially in supporting uh, DRA, the DRM agenda. <clears throat> so as part of the Fiscal Affairs Department, we, we, we have uh, a modality of uh, building capacity in, in various countries. We have uh, what uh, uh, work that is being done or the strategic work that's done from the, the headquarters here in Washington. And then we have what we call regional capacity development centers in, uh, in, uh, on, on, in the various continents, but Africa has a major share of these um, um, RCDCs. And then we have uh, 
a framework for supporting fragile states where we place uh, advisors for a long term to assist um, uh, the countries implement things that we, we tend to take for granted if you come from uh, a developed tax system that still need to be built in most of these countries. Now, I'll try to, to, to frame my answers using some of the, the some quotes or some, some comments that were done in the reports, which I found very, very interesting and um, in line with what I think we, we, we do and the, the approach we take at, uh, in the Fiscal Affairs Department. So one key, one key line that came out was few countries aspire to receive increased levels of foreign aid as a long-term development strategy. I think honestly all of us know that it cannot, aid cannot be a long-term development strategy. These countries, we need to start developing our own capacity to deliver whatever uh, development uh, plans we have. In the words of one African president, he said aid is political. Uh, I think he, he got the idea of what, what, what every country aspires to do. First of all, I don't think it's sustainable that most of the development, the countries that are supporting ODA will have infinite resources to continue supporting it endlessly. So there has to come a time when these countries or each country takes up uh, the challenge to actually finance its own, its own development. I think it's good for everyone. Now, in, in, the, same, in the same report, we, in, in this very report, it says many countries currently depend on foreign aid. That depend on foreign aid will not meet the SDGs, where there is a requirement of about 2.4 trillion per year of additional financing. That that is, it's something that cannot be delivered if we continue or in 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 in, in a framework where there are small incremental steps to domestic revenue mobilization that's being undertaken. It requires something much more transformational. And I think that's what this report is talking about. How do we unlock or deliver more transformational GRM capabilities in, in, in most of the countries, the low-income countries? So the approach from the fund is, yes, we know that there has to be a transformational uh, approach. But in the meantime, we need to do stuff that, that lays foundations to, to, to enable the, the, the transformational uh, 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 step that we want to take to, to become a reality. So while it's most of the transformation of uh, uh, requirements or uh, agenda hinges a lot on political will, there is aspect of the DRM that can still go ahead without necessarily having the, the, the larger political will. And in this, we look at, we're talking about just developing capacities in the various institutions, whether it's at the Ministry of Finance, whether it's uh, in the central banks, whether it's the revenue authorities, all the institutions that are required to deliver a much more functional economy. In most of the countries that we work, especially on my continent, Africa, these, these are key issues that are still, some of them are very low capacity. And you have to develop a journey that is step by step incrementally to deliver a stage where you, <coughs> you can have enough mass to carry on or to, to take on a much more larger uh, project of DRIM. So I like what the report says. It says taking advantage of the political windows of opportunity. Uh, there was a discussion where these normally come and then sometimes they shut. 
So a country that is more prepared to exploit these, these opportunities when they arise is in a better chance to start improving, uh, reaching the bare minimum that Dan is talking about of 20%. Most uh, sub-Saharan average is about 15, 15, 16. It's still quite a long way, and some countries are very way, way, way below, but for about 4% of GDP, that's, that's really nothing to finance even just basic health. Sorry, Muyongo, who, who's 4% of GDP? Who's that? That's we, terrible. We have countries like South Sudan. South Sudan is 4% of GDP. Yes, they're in, in, in that area. So in, in, in trying, in trying to, to support a bigger DRM agenda, like I said, we recognize the need to build these institutional capacities. So the, 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 the fund, for example, we've been supporting in my work, we support the revenue administration um, side, the tax administrations, as you call them here. In Africa, there are normally revenue authorities, which combines customs and tax together. So we've been supporting that to build capacity on both sides of customs and tax to, to, to deliver a little bit better, more, more revenues within the existing tax policy frameworks that may be full of concessions, full of uh, various expenditure incentives that, that erode the base. But within there, we still believe that there is, um, there is need to build capacity to, to deliver to the, to the level of the, 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 the policy framework that is in, in existence. We'll get to a much more better of the transformational side where now you start dealing with uh, the legal side, the policy side, the administration side, all together as one comprehensive and coherent strategy to deliver revenues. So in, in that area, in, in, in recognizing that we need to still develop the institutions, we have been uh, trying to build capacity to expand registers, develop better governance arrangement for these uh, tax administrations, begin to develop approaches that will help them develop or improve levels of, of voluntary compliance as a basic start. <coughs> so in some countries, the work is so basic that you still talk about developing procedures, uh, putting together uh, procedure manuals. When I say procedures, I mean actual manuals, systems, and uh, reporting frameworks, and all that. But that's part of the work that is required to lay the foundation. I'm glad to say, though, that some countries, it's not all doom. There are some countries in the region or on, on the continent that are actually showing a lot of progress. We've seen them over a period of the last 10 years actually increase their, their, their tax to GDP um, uh, or their revenues as a, as, a, as a percentage of GDP, even within this, what we may call not, not the kind of framework, policy framework that you'd like to see for a better DRIM. Now, there was another comment in the report or another section where it says, or another paragraph which says, DRM effort must attack resource mobilization challenges from both directions, structural and political. And that's true. That's a transformational stage we're talking about. Now, in the the platform on, collab on uh, collaboration of taxes, on the request of the G20, developed, have developed an approach that looks at both the political and the institutional capacity building at the same time or, or together to behave, to, 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 to deliver a much more coherent strategy to, towards DRM. And the, the term for it is a medium term revenue strategy. Some countries or most of some of the countries, I think on the African continent now, we have one which is implementing and two which have expressed a desire to, to implement a much more comprehensive approach to domestic revenue mobilization, which deals with looking at the tax policy, 
reforming the revenue administration, and also putting in an enabling legal environment that allows most of these changes to take place. Now, another, another concept, key to that, I, I, might, I want to, to, to take a bit of time here, Dan, just to, to, to say why the, the MTRS is sort of... At the MTRS, just remind people what the MTRS. The medium-term revenue strategy. Why it creates, it, it responds better, or it's, it's almost like the answer to what is being suggested in the report, bringing together political the, 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 the structural adjustment. One of the requisites of an, an effective MTRS is that it has to be owned by the country. It has to be linked to the development plan. So the revenues are actually well costed to understand the financing for development requirements that they have to deliver whatever strategy they call the Vision 2050 National Transformation Strategies. That's where it starts from. Now to deliver such a higher level, transformational level of revenues requires the, the approach that the MTRS is suggesting. You look at your, you redesign your tax policy, you build uh, your revenue capacity and the, the legal frameworks. One, the, the second element to that is not only is it uh, owned by the country, it's government-led, it's consultative, which requires the private sector, the, the, uh, what we call the NGOs on the continent, the non-governmental organizations, the, the citizenry to get involved in, in understanding exactly the requirements of the country. I think that kind of buy-in creates a better stage for, 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 for better results. The other part is that it actually allows support to a country to be organized from the, the development partners, that they now know what needs to be done in a country. And we do not have the, the yearly and related interventions that most of the, the, the development partners or those with money would want to do in a country. It, 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 it forms interventions in a much more coherent strategy. But the next point I'd like to talk about is where, where where the, the social contract becomes a key issue. In addressing that part where the citizens feel that they are getting a benefit of tax, I'll use the example of my own country, Zambia. I used to work in the Zambia Revenue Authority for, for a long time before I joined uh, the fund. And when, with the support of uh, the UK government, the, the Revenue Authority in Zambia was created out of the customs and tax department, one of the key issues that was decided at that time was to come up with a slogan that reflects the role of a revenue authority, which says, get the benefit of paying tax. That was the slogan of the revenue authority when it was created. What was, what was the slogan? Get the benefit of paying tax. Get the benefit of paying tax. I like it. Bring to it. Well, it was short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> because of the general feeling by the citizens that they were not getting the benefit of paying tax, so truth and there was a truth in advertising problem. Yes, there was. <laughs> that had to be changed. Now, here is a reaction that just shows how much when citizens feel that they are not getting the benefit of paying tax, it affects the revenue administration itself, and therefore the, the resource mobilization capacitors all just um, slows down, if, if I may put it that way. The Zambia Revenue Authority realizing that most of the time we came out to do uh, public education, uh, tax education seminars, the key question we asked is why should I pay tax? That quickly killed the slogan. Instead, we, we found uh, 
something that no one could take us to task about. It was called working efficiently to save you, whatever that means. But this, this is the power of when the social contract, the citizens are demanding a better delivery, more transparent spending, um, uh, prioritization for whatever do domestic resources are being mobilized, how it actually begins to, to feed the cycle. When the government gets more transparent, you start seeing a little bit more or better participation in the citizens in paying the taxes because they can see actually where, where it's going. So to wrap it up uh, here um, on my presentation, Dan, I think this is a very good report and it, it sits very well with the kind of work that we do at, at the fund. And congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Could, could you, Miyongwa, could you talk about which countries in Africa, I mean, I, the one that comes to mind always is Rwanda, but there must be other countries where you've said in Africa that have had sort of the greatest reforms that, you, that you're sort of most impressed with when you think about on the continent. What are, what are a, ha a couple of countries that you're most, that you're either promising or you're most in, encouraged by? Okay, so we, we came up, we're looking at uh, some of it. We're using the tax to GDP as, as one of the, the indicators of where something, a response has been uh, seen from the various reform efforts. So in, in that, we, we, we talk about Cape Verde, Malawi, Mali. Uh, Dan, you took out Rwanda. Yeah. Rwanda is, is, is one of them. And one of the case study countries, Uganda. And we, we went back to look at a decade of reforms and what kind of uh, responses we, we, we're looking at. So between 2012, 2007 and, and, um, and 2012, Malawi, for example, had a 0.25 percentage increase in tax to GDP. Rwanda had 2.81. Uganda, in that period of the five years of 2007, and, uh, 2007 to 20, 2012, had actually a decline and kept fed. But 2012 to 2017, we saw all the countries ramp up their, their, their uh, contribution. Kaved 2.37, Malawi 3.0, Mali 3.22, Rwanda 1.16, and Uganda 2.8. So when you look at the whole period of 2007, the 10 years to 2017, Malawi at 3.3, Mali 2.68 and Rwanda almost four percentage points of, of GDP. Now, I'd like to talk about Rwanda for one reason. I did a lot of work there and we've just come out of a mission from Rwanda to assess the level of progress they've made since 2015. And a lot of things have, have, have really changed and it, it explains why they're able to, to, to see benefits or to, to, to see better yields from the revenue side. One of the key issues they worked on was just trying to expand the tax registers and build a much more reliable tax register. Then they've laid the framework for, uh, for better uh, compliance management using uh, more risk-based. They are dealing with provision, uh, less burdensome ways of the taxpayers interacting with the tax system, e-filing. A lot of e-service functionality has been developed in Rwanda, riding on the mobile phone, uh, technology and just internet. No more internet the way we know it in this side, this side of the world. But the mobile phone technology aspect has allowed them to unlock a lot of PIT, uh, personal income tax potential, on the small taxpayers who pay their taxes in a simplified way using a mobile phone 
and it files your return at the same time. Now, it's not surprising that personal income tax has been the success story of Rwanda's movement in, G in, in tax to GDP over the years that they have been uh, applying the, the reforms. So they've, they've simplified the way the, the smaller chunks or the smaller taxpayers actually interact with the system. And they've, they've, they've gone ahead to, to look at other ways of supporting new taxpayers as they come on board. So they've developed programs where they, we call it the Kawash, uh, one of the experts where we called the Kawash effect, where you actually walk in at the beginning of, you drive in at the beginning and come out a very clean person. But all through the process you are being assisted where someone is hoovering, is, is running a hoover or they are using a window or whatever. But what they do is they have a program for new registrants. Just before their filing cycles, they meet them and start talking to them about what they should, uh, what a return looks like, how to, f to fill in a return, what they need to keep. And they are monitored all through till after the filing cycle. They are now trying to take it back to the next, to the next level of the payment and then they are trying to look at the, the accuracy of uh, the reporting in the returns. So these are some of the, 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 the measures that Rwanda has, has taken that, that um, has unlocked sort of the potential. We, we shouldn't forget that this is a, a few years ago, this was a conflict, a country coming out of conflict. And within this time frame, they've managed to move up almost four percentage points of GDP. Kimberly, thanks for being here, and uh, I'd love to hear, hear your take on this as well. What are, what are some of the countries you're encouraged by? Well, usually when we look to is Georgia as our uh, kind of shining star, so to speak, that we worked through throughout the years. Uh, we started our engage in 2005 and continue to do so in different areas across the board, not just DRM, but also public financial management and some other areas. So we've really seen a sustained support and notable increases in investments in the health and education sector. So that's the country that we're really interested in. But I did want to make a related point here. Um, we talked about uh, quite a bit about political will in our partner countries that we work with. There's also something to be said about political will here, generating here in the donor countries. So we have conservatively estimated that when successful, our programs, for every dollar that we have invested in DRM assistance programs, they have raised another $20 in new revenues that we just kind of talked about with the Liberia program. So that's the real value for money that helps us gain the uh, political uh, support that we need to sustain our budgets in this space. Right. So my mother, when I, I don't want to out my mother, but my mother is a big foreign aid skeptic. And so she'll say, like, come on, a lot of this money is you know, money down. I suspect everyone when they go home at Thanksgiving in this audience has to explain to, you know, not, you know, what they do. And some folks are sort of skeptical about it. And I think that's the kind of statistic that can, that can bring folks along who are perhaps skeptical about the, the value of these programs. Could you, Kimberly, could you talk about, um, uh, Myungwa talked about the, the social contract. Could you talk a little bit about either the social contract or the role of civil society as you think about these programs? And how does that, how's that come across your radar screen in your work at USAID? So under the journey to self-reliance, we're really looking at this at a very much broader basis. And one of the areas that we're looking at in particular is civil society and how we can better engage. And we've had a great participation 
with our team um, in the DRG Center, Democracy Center, uh, Democracy and Governance Center at USAID. We have a working group that is co-chaired by our E3 colleagues that have a focus on uh, the private sector, but we also have robust uh, participation from our democracy side because it is so key to the long-term sustainability. So we really look at the importance of civil society to play that watchdog role in terms of how budgets are developed and how budget are educated. And so we want to continue. It's a longer-term process. We want to make sure that citizens have that role, too, to participate in uh, the process and uh, build, again, build that relationship between the state and citizens to, to enforce that taxpaying culture. So we want to incorporate the DRG into the DRM and PFM agendas. That's a lot of acronyms, but I, I, I just couldn't help Sorry. myself. But, I, but, that's it, but, but that's the, but it's, it seems to me that the, um, that there's a, if, if societies don't believe that the money's being well spent, then they're not going to pay taxes. Actually, some, one of, someone in the pregame was talking about, and I think this is an interesting, provocative, I think constructively provocative thing to say, that if societies collect taxes, um, that government bureaucrats, this is maybe a contestable proposition, but an interesting one, that government bureaucrats are going to be less willing to misspend that money than donor money. And I think that's a or less willing to steal that money than donor money. And I think that's an interesting, I think that's, an, that's, a, that's a provocation, but I also think it's, a, an, it, and, and it's up for contestation, but I actually think there's, it rings true to me, and I think that's an interesting one in terms, of, in terms of thinking about people, you know, we talk about country ownership. I also think if somebody um, collects taxes and then steals them and, uh, it's one thing if a donor puts an Interpol uh, watch on some uh, some minister, and they kind of go off scot free. It's another thing if um, you have to face um, an angry mob in your in your town that there's a, there's a higher level of accountability. Maybe I can put it that way, and so maybe the incentives are aligned if I, I can put it that way. So so anyways, thank you very much, George. Can I ask you to, this issue of the social contract and the role of civil society? Can you could you comment on that from your from from where you sit? I think you you know maybe a broad question, a broad answer would be that you need to build up these intermediary institutions between the government and the taxpayer uh, so that they. They support the taxpayers. They support uh, what needs to be done in terms of making the right policies and implementing them. Um, and so there's a quid pro quo, uh, that uh, possibility here for m many areas. Um, but you can work that in at the micro level to projects, I think, that can be scaled up in the tax uh, area. Um, one thing we noticed when we worked, uh, I used to work in local government uh, finance reform projects in, in various countries. And uh, we noticed uh, in um, Albania that <clears throat> when the local government tax people allowed the small, hold, the small uh, business people in their market stalls to stay off the radar uh, for a while and build up their revenues, build up their scale so that they could then enter the tax system later as, as responsible taxpayers that would be that would be you know into that system uh, 
And we felt that was a good incentive, that a, a good uh, relationship between the government. So they began to trust the government. They weren't just going to come in and do, quote, control, harassment, uh, you know, um, shakedowns, inventories every uh, month. Uh, that is often common with the tax services that, that we used to notice in, in, many, in many of these countries. So there was a shift of culture in uh, the institutional culture in Albania, and I think that was uh, driven by the fact that you need the recognition that you needed to change the, uh, the mindset and get something in return for uh, enforcement. It wasn't just the idea of just putting people in jail and finding them. You were trying to get them to generate revenue so that you could finance the budget and, uh, and cover, your own, uh, cover your own resources. Just one point that uh, you made, I thought, was interesting that uh, aid cannot be, I think you said aid cannot be uh, long term. Uh, and that, I think, suggests that maybe these yeah, DRM projects uh, have to be reliant either on something else, maybe civil society or some kind of ODA account. But if you, um, if you decentralize aid, and we did the, what, what was called the public financial management risk assessment framework and tested it in Liberia about six, seven years ago, uh, to decentralize the aid, to build up the trust of the, uh, the donors so that the money could be spent uh, by the host country, then the host country can then reprogram that money into DRM if it's a need to strengthen the tax service, to change the policy so that, you know, so we don't just measure improvements in, in the DRM by tax GDP because you can collect more money uh, tax GDP just from the, uh, from the customs service or from natural resources. And those are not, those are not broad-based taxes that build the link between the taxpayer and the government. Okay, so Alex, could you talk about this issue of the in Liberia, the role of civil society in, in a place like Liberia as part of the work that you're doing? You were talking about uh, earlier about you saw presidential in, in presidential campaign and, and talk a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Good. So uh, yes, and, and indeed, we we've been uh, supporting civil society um, in we are supporting civil society as it comes to to the uh, asking questions about taxes and uh, in particular, for example, we, some people they 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 feel very. Um, uh, institutions, they, they feel very um, uncertain when it comes to, to presidential elections. And they say, okay, if it's presidential elections, we are, we are out. I mean, we have to, we have to wait. It's, we have too, to it's too political. It's too political, right. But in reality, uh, there is civil society. And, and while all the presidential candidates, they're going out there and they're asking, and they're making promises, multi-million, multi-billion dollar promises, uh, there are civil uh, society organizations that actually want to ask a question. Okay, thank you for, for all these promises. Uh, how are you going to fund them, right? So that's, um, and that's where we could, we could also, uh, uh, we did uh, come in and try to help civil society organizations to better understand, because they're not necessarily uh, very uh, versatile, not very, very strong in understanding tax issues or potential tax avenues, right? Very often, 
Uh, anyway, so you do help them to frame their questions, to understand the, the, this better, and and then in turn, and that's what they did. They would they would go out and they would uh, uh, ask their own after after understanding the issues even deeper from technical perspective. They would go out and ask their own questions. And they've even developed uh, questionnaires. They would submit questionnaires to the uh, presidential uh, hopefuls, uh, and they would get uh, answers from them and educate them in the process. Because even presidential candidates, they, they, they need to try and understand what the issues are and what are potential avenues for, for reform. So civil society plays a, a big role. I mean, we also have some other USAID projects over there. Uh, that, um, that that are trying to demand and, and, and see what what is the what is the outcome of the of the public expenditures that is, that is being uh, that or how do they use the money what what is the outcome and transparency plays a huge role and that's uh, that's actually one of the cornerstones of our intervention is promoting transparency uh, on the tax side right for example before. And um, I want to show a picture, but uh, anyway. It's gone away. It's gone away, okay. So <clears throat> so before they would only capture one or two uh, pieces of information from a tax return, right? And now uh, they, through e-filing, through data processing centers we've established, they can capture 100% of information from a tax return. Uh, and make sure that tax returns don't disappear. Uh, I wanted to show you a picture of a warehouse, you know, if you've seen... Imagine a picture of a warehouse. Right, well, you can't imagine that, but, okay. but yes, so, so the, the, um, you will never find those tax returns so, uh, at, at those warehouses, and I think some of us have seen uh, those um, around, around the world, right? So when you, <laughs> when, you, uh, when you make sure that the data is in the databases, then you are making sure that uh, at, at the uh, that it's in internal transparency. It's much more harder to to hide the tax return in your in your drawer or or at the warehouse and and so on. So transparency plays a huge role. Also, uh, systems like e-filing would allow um, countries around the world to estimate tax expenditures, and when tax expenditures are estimated. Then you can uh, the government uh, can include them in the in the in the budget, or civil society may, may actually ask a question: Why are we spending ten dollars on education, ten dollars on health, and and then a thousand dollars in tax expenditures? So that's that has been uh, very very uh, crucial to facilitate and support the work of civil society. And you all been very patient. I'd love to hear from this thoughtful audience. So we've got microphones. Please, this woman here. Name, rank, and serial number, please, and question. My name is Sharon Carter. I'm the Deputy Director of the Democracy and Governance Center at USAID. And my question is, in your experience, I, my, I guess I'm, my question is about valuation of the common good. And in your experience, to what extent, I mean, when we think about getting the benefits of paying taxes, does it have to be the road in front of my house that's paved or the midwife in my local clinic like right down the road so when my daughter gives birth there's a midwife or is it enough to have a generalized improvement in the regional hospital or some paved roads in the province and it thank you that's a great question others please let's bunch them together yes please 
I have my oh, great. Yeah, Perfect. Uh, Michelle Strzok from Oxfam America. I'm a senior um, policy manager for aid and development finance. Thank you. I um, was wondering what your thoughts were on not just the um, collection of revenue, but how that revenue is collected. So if you have thoughts in your um, areas on how to raise revenue in ways that are fair for people in the country and that maximize the areas of revenue collection that are um, really responding to the potential of the different segments of society so that tax collection doesn't end up kind of increasing inequalities. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Excellent question. Please, my friend back there with, the, with the, my, his hat, 2017, back there in the corner. Thank you very much. The question is, George, I was in Chilcote class on issues of development and underdevelopment. And one of the things I did was write a paper on some of the problems of development in African obstacles, and that it didn't see taxation, revenue tax collection, as a major issue, the wider issue. So all the things you all are doing in this report is interesting, but it is like you're taking a long walk on a short pier. You, you need to think about what are the sources for revenue collections besides the traditional one you're talking about. Are these countries economy expanding so people have more jobs, so corporations are there? That's what you should be talk, looking at. Okay, so I think in that, in that case, I think think about things like oil, gas, and mining revenue. Think about expanding the economic pie. How do we, those sorts of things. Okay, so, so three interesting questions, and you, you don't have to answer all of them, but I'd like each of the panelists to reflect on any of the questions that you want to reflect on. I'll start with you, Alex. Okay. Use the microphone. I would say that social contract is, is, is very important, um, and there are different ways of, of building that connection. The easiest is probably when you have property taxes, right? And property taxes, um, in Liberia so far, they are centralized, and that's what we are uh, try working with the government to make sure they are decentralized in the sense that uh, local, just like here, right, uh, the, your taxes, uh, property taxes would go to finance local school, and then there is a direct benefit, right, because uh, you finance your, uh, you, your, you pay your taxes, it finances your local school, as a result, more people, school improves, more people want to move into that area, and their property value goes up, right? So it's a, this is one of the best examples how to demonstrate to the government, to the citizenry, uh, the benefit of, uh, of taxation. But interestingly, this is not the major source of, of, of revenues. The major source of revenues, of course, comes from, uh, you can say, Pareto principle, uh, top 20% of taxpayers would account for 80% of revenues. And in reality, if you, from experience, most, most often it's 1% of taxpayers that account for 90% of revenues, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not only the, and, and to some extent this, this is how, how the, the, uh, the, if you want, tax distribution works there. And, and it's harder to attribute. So, so then um, it's more important to, to have campaigns, and I know that, uh, for example, in, in the Philippines, I think MCC paid $2 million to, to have an uh, ad on TV whereby um, each person is bringing different size of bricks to be, and then you see they're piling them together and then they turn into a bridge and then they turn into a, into a different piece of infrastructure and so on. And, and, uh, and of course, each brick you know, of different size, this is the, the tax you pay, right? So it's a, 
I hope that was money well spent. But, but, but I think, <laughs> That's a good question. But, but good question. what about this issue of okay, how do how do I know what is the how do I know that things are improving? So right now there's an there's an election campaign going on now in Argentina, and so on the one hand there's a lot of unhappiness with the current government. I hope he wins. The the I think he's the good guy, Macri. But and so there's a lot of grumpiness about the macro economy. But one of the things people will say is, well, he's building a lot of roads. He's building a lot of roads, and so maybe that's enough to swing it. So how, what is the proximate, I think this is to, to, to my friend's question here, is how, how does somebody feel like they're getting something from taxes? What, why, what's the proximate, how, does it have to be the road in front of the house, or is it just the general sense of the public welfare is getting better, or is it, is, I know that there's a cop on the street in my town. How, how does somebody know that, that things are getting better? Well, to, to, to a large extent, this is, this is a world of perceptions. Uh, donors have built a road. And then try and think of it. Should, we, should government take credit for it? Uh, I don't know. They've attracted the, Or maybe they borrowed money to build this, this road, right? So, uh, so it's, for the governments, it's relatively easy to create a perception of actually spending money uh, on 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 the, this way or or the other in a, in a positive way, uh, but in the end, <laughs> when you have a corruption scandal, right? <laughs> That's when you take a hit. <laughs> you take a big hit, right? Uh, or uh, of course, if you can, uh, you you go to 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 a hospital and and, and there are no no proper. So, so some of it, some of it's a sh some of it's a show. Yeah. Some of it's some of it's strategic communication. Some of it's politics. Okay. So, can you, Alec, could you respond to this this inequality issue? Sort of I, my, I, tax. Let's go. So, I, I, VAT taxes are famously unfair to poor people, right? So, if you're a poor person and you've got a you know a, a, a value added tax, that means that it, it's regressive. And can you just talk a little bit about that issue? Yes, some, some of, uh, definitely you can, when, when, when designing a tax system, you, you should be able to con take these, these things into consideration. Some, some taxes are uh, progressive, some taxes are regressive, meaning some taxes uh, improve the situation in terms of inequality, some taxes uh, exacerbate it. But in the end, it's not only the tax system that, uh, that, that matters. Uh, for example, in 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 the Philippines, they they uh, they had a VAT um, exemption for senior citizens, right? Uh, well, it probably was a was a was a good initial idea, but if you think so about it's it, it's like reverse fake IDs are starting to be in place, right? So in the U.S., you have these fake IDs to say you're 21 years old to drink. People are going to have fake IDs saying you're senior citizens. <laughs> Yeah, that, that too, that too. But also, not every senior citizen is, is poor, right? So uh, in reality, you can use these revenues from, from VAT, from other taxes, to finance well-targeted expenditure uh, systems, to, to target really poor uh, people, who vulnerable groups that, who, who need the support. So, okay. George, let me start with, let me get your response. Let me go down on the panel here. Well, you've asked uh, I mean, to try and narrow down the point at, at the threshold point at which uh, a tax, uh, tax uh, uh, rate, let's say, is considered fair by the taxpayer. Um, they're getting their fair share. Maybe they see a road. Maybe they see a hospital. 
and uh, I think Alex is right. It's uh, it gets into the expectations and reality gap that's always going to be the reality. The expectations are always going to be higher than the reality. Uh, you may get a new road, but you know that uh, you know X, Y, and Z are your neighbors aren't paying taxes because they have tax expenditures. That's not fair. And so you might just come away with you know thinking you've got a couple. Uh, there's a couple of assets that usually appear right before elections. They start paving the roads, and uh, that uh, doesn't convince you because you you know your neighbors uh, often aren't paying uh, their fair share of the tax. It's a conundrum. Uh, I don't have a solution to that one, but it uh, it's something that the tax authorities uh, deal with. You know, you, you you can see it right here in this community. You, you have top schools, you pay a lot of taxes, but when uh, many people, uh, I'm not gonna name names, but when their kids graduate, uh, they, they don't wanna pay those taxes anymore. Why should I? Why should I pay taxes? Because my kids have graduated. Why should I pay for yours? You know, Imagine, th this kind of attitude that's, that's uh, prevalent here is prevalent all over the world, I'm afraid. Uh, and that's, uh, that's uh, the conundrum that, that, you're, that you're faced with. You know? Okay, Kimberly. Thank you. So I just want to address the question back here about uh, increasing the economic pie, so to speak. At USCID, under this journey of self-reliance that our administrator has kind of put forward as our main objective, we're really looking at how DRM uh, issues, public financial management issues kind of play in, and the role of the private sector. So what do our missions need to do to improve the environment to encourage both domestic and international investment in countries to really expand the and generate wealth that countries then can tap into in, in terms of public revenues? And what do we need to do to uh, make sure that the financial institutions in a country are well regulated, that they are able to kind of pull together resources and allocate them very efficiently to very productive undertakings to help, again, facilitate the private sector and their contributions? Um, I don't want to bring up another subject, but uh, we see, especially in places like Africa, the role of China and increasing significantly. No, no let's talk about them. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad. Bring that into the conversation. Um, I just want to make the point that we're so so we're seeing these very vulnerable countries go into very debt very quickly, and it's a concern. So we're really looking at the private sector and its role in terms of generating the wealth that countries aren't as dependent and kind of get back into this debt trap that we're quite concerned about. Well, I, I, I think, I'm glad you raised that. I think the Prosper Africa initiative, the U.S. government has an initiative called Prosper Africa, and I think the United States, we need to look at Africa as an opportunity, not as a, a problem to be managed. China looks at Africa as an opportunity. So we need to have, uh, we need to shift our, it's, it's on us to shift our mindset. There's a whole, you know, I think there's many opportunities, and I think, um, so I think that's a part of it. Um, so I, I'm glad you raised that. I, we, the, um, and I do think uh, it, there's a link, I think, to the Prosper Africa agenda and, and this agenda, so thanks. Myungwa, I'd, I'd welcome any comments you have from uh, any the, responding to any of the questions or comments that are put on the table. I'll start with the first one on valuation of uh, what's good or the benefit of paying tax. It's contextual. Each country has its own issues. So in a developed economy, there are a lot of things that people take for granted, like going to hospital and actually finding medication, going to school and finding a desk and a teacher and books. Now. 
in a, in a country where you, you, you come up and say we have a public, public school system, in, in my country when I say public school system, I don't mean the way you mean them here. That's, that's the one that's provided by the government. And then we have private schools. So the, the, the public school is where the majority of the citizens would go to. And these, nothing is available, if, if I put it that way, or the bare basics that are required to run an education system are not there. The healthcare system is not working. You, you get a prescription, but you can't find the drugs. At that stage, most of the citizens will decide what the priorities are. And if the government is focusing on de delivering the priorities, they feel they are getting the benefit of paying their tax. To build a road right outside his house that's leading to nowhere, or that's, not, that's quickly taking him to a hospital where there are no drugs, is not a solution to, to the people. So it's, it's, it's in a context of the level of development of a country and what the key issues are. It, it, I, would, I, would, I would love to say that in most of the countries, people would want to see a better health system, a better education system. They know education delivers uh, better long-term long -term results. And yes, they would like to see better infrastructure, but the question is, if you ask them, what's the priority exactly? So those are the key issues that they say they want to see the benefit. If, if, if they are not getting the employment, they are not getting schools, they are not getting health services, the road does not mean much to them. Most politicians now you hear them saying you can't eat a road because we are talking about basic issues. Okay, I think we need to end it here. I'm sorry. I think we need to end it here. And thank you all for being here. And please join me in thanking the panel. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.